the OPP Africana and South Asian Philosophies podcast series. Please join us to learn from thinkers around the world about the sub-themes Africana and South Asian philosophies and the values of our education of our public philosophy journal's second release, we call it Term 2, in November 2021. Together we as students begin to inquire about traditions understudied in Euro-American philosophical institutions while investigating our own assumptions and the way our traditions present these philosophies. Here and beyond, we intend to participate in ameliorating the deficits in representation, respect and resources required to transform our minds and social worlds in search of how to live ethically. Welcome to Oxford Public Philosophy's podcast series in continuation of the discussion groups we have hosted this year. Oxford Public Philosophy is a student-led journal space for critically questioning what philosophy is and how we are doing it in form and content. For the second turn of the journal, the focus has been on Africana philosophy, South Asian philosophy, and critical pedagogy. As part of our ethos of public philosophy, we hosted a series of discussion groups engaging with these fields of thought. We're now hosting this series of podcast interviews slash conversations, critically reflecting on our engagement with Africana and South Asian philosophies. My name is Shruta Kirti Basak, and today I will be talking to Professor Peter Adamson and Professor Chike Jeffers about the History of Philosophy podcast, which has been enormously influential in guiding turn two of our journal. Professor Adamson is the host of the podcast History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. The series looks at the ideas, lives, and historical context of major philosophers, as well as the lesser known figures of the tradition. Professor Chike Jeffers co-wrote the African philosophy series for this podcast. This series of episodes examines philosophy originating from Africa and the African diaspora. So thank you for being here today. Uh, I thought we could get started with um, the history of the History of Philosophy podcast um, and maybe talk about how you came up with the idea or like how you got it started um, and you know, how you decided what episodes you're going to make and things like that. Well, I guess that one would be for me since I was involved before GK was. Hi, GK, by the way. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> Well, it started in 2010, so it's been running for more than 10 years now. And it really started because I was listening to a lot of podcasts myself, including some some philosophy podcasts like Philosophy Bites, for example. And I also was listening to a lot of podcasts that were just about history. So I was particularly influenced by one called The History of Rome which is hosted by someone named Mike Duncan, who's gone on to do another really brilliant podcast about the history of political revolutions. And it sort of struck me that it would be really cool if someone did a podcast that dealt with philosophy in the style of a history podcast. I sort of started at the beginning and moved forward inch by inch without leaving anything out. And then I thought, well, even though what I really want is that someone else would make this podcast so I could listen to it, probably no one will. And I'm a specialist in ancient and medieval philosophy, which is the first thing that would have to be covered. So maybe I should do it. And I actually hesitated for quite a long time. I don't know if I've ever told this to Chike, but I I mean, I spent like almost a full year wondering if I should do it because I thought, oh, this will be a lot of work. And, but then eventually I just thought the idea was too good not to use. And so I 
started at the wrong place, actually, because I started with the pre-Socratics, which seemed like the obvious thing to do. And then subsequently, when we developed the idea of the Africana philosophy series, and maybe Chike can say a little bit about how that came into being, we realized that we needed to go back actually quite a bit earlier than the earliest uh, philosophers who wrote in Greek and cover Egyptian philosophy, ancient Egyptian philosophy. And as kind of context for that, we also covered Babylonian philosophy. So at this point, the podcast covers everything from ancient Egypt up to about the Renaissance. And it also goes later than that because in the Africana series, we've now gotten up through like the 19th century. We're now in the early 20th century. We're going to keep going and cover the rest of the 20th century. And then with Janardan Ganeri, who was another co-author, we covered classical Indian philosophy. So there's quite a lot of it already. There's already more than 500 episodes total. And maybe Chike can say something about how we got into the Africana series. Yeah, I was just about to ask about, you know, where you started with your research and, um, you know, how you developed it and like in what ways it surprised you and the ways that episodes got developed. With respect to the Africana series, um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the prehistory, so to speak, of the Africana series would be the fact that um, I managed to be a listener of the podcast from the beginning. Um, so I do remember, uh, I think it was probably um, on Brian Leiter's uh, website uh, or blog, probably um, that it had been announced, and uh, so so I'm pretty sure that, uh, you, that 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 only the first episode or maybe just a few episodes uh, were available when I first started listening to the podcast, and um, so I was a fan, and <clears throat> the uh, the one thing that that I had a complaint about uh, was the idea of it being called the history of philosophy without any gaps. When uh, the first episode as it was then uh, in existence, you know, uh, indicated uh, that there would be continent sized gaps. Um, and uh, so I was for that reason, very excited uh, when Peter on the uh, the podcast's blog uh, was showing more openness to um, to expanding the series. And um, one story that I am very fond of is the fact that uh, that you can actually see um, a specific conversation on the blog in which I am uh, encouraging the idea of um, expanding the series. And uh, in, in speaking of people that he could collaborate with, I mentioned Jonathan Ganeri uh, as someone to collaborate with uh, in order to cover Indian philosophy. And I also mentioned um, I think I mentioned more than one person, but one of the people I mentioned in terms of East Asian philosophy uh, was Karen Lai, with whom Peter will be uh, covering um, Chinese philosophy in episodes to come um, that will be 
coming out after uh, our Africana series wraps up. Uh, so uh, apparently I was quite prophetic. The one thing that I, uh, you know, had no prophecy of in the context of uh, making those remarks on the blog is that I would become a collaborator too. And, uh, and that, that, that did not happen right at that point. Um, I don't think uh, I would have to, you know, scour the, uh, the, the, the comments uh, and so on to, to, to get the, 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 um, the flow of events down better. But I do know that at some point, while I think it was in response to Peter having mentioned, you know, oh, and possibly other stuff like Africa, right? Um, I would have at some point said, um, you know, and by the way, as this is my area of specialty, if you would like to discuss what would be involved in trying to cover that, then, you know, I, I would be happy to discuss that. Uh, and, uh, and Peter uh, showed interest. So as I recall, <clears throat> we had a, a Skype conversation. Um, it feels like, like that was the Skype era and we're in the Zoom era. <laughs> but uh, time flies. Um, you know, we had a Skype conversation and it was a great conversation. And, you know, um, I remember that by the end of it, uh, yeah, Peter seemed positively excited about um, covering um, Africana philosophy next after um, the series with John, co-written with Jonathan Canary um, on Indian philosophy. So that's uh, the, 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 the origins. Um, and I think that uh, how the co-authorship works with different co-authors uh, probably differs uh, from person to person. And that's something that that Peter can speak to. I mean, um, certainly in my case, the the first step was uh, planning out, you know, what we would do. And I also was very uh, used to the way that uh, the series would kind of operate in three parts. And so, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the part of the podcast that came out as classical philosophy now on the uh the website uh labeled i think uh more clearly as classical greek philosophy um but uh you know that was in three parts it had pre-socratics then it had um uh socrates and plato and then it had aristotle right and so uh similarly i ended up with this three-part um structure that we've used where the first part is focused on pre-colonial African philosophy. Um, the second part is focused on um, the development of philosophy in the era of slavery and colonialism and the uh, third part is uh, focused on the 20th century. Um, the first part, it's worth noting, is entitled uh, Locating and Debating Pre-Colonial African Philosophy because uh, in addition to um, looking 
to pre-colonial times. It is also about uh, professional African philosophy and how professional African philosophy uh, as a subdiscipline sort of emerged as a debate around the status of pre-colonial traditional African philosophy. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's a little bit about uh, how it came to be and, and um, the way forward. I mean, uh, the other thing is, you know, beyond, the, um, beyond me planning it out, um, as we've mentioned in an interview that's available on the podcast, it's, it's actually split pretty equally between us in terms of who does uh, the first draft of an episode. So, um, you know, uh, many uh, and, you know, at times, depending on how things are going, it can even like maybe sometimes go 60%, um, something like that. You know, um, it's actually, you know, uh, Peter, who with some suggestions for me has really um, done the, the, uh, the basis for that episode as far as the first draft that I would, that I would then, you know, revise and, and add or subtract anything I want. Um, and then, you know, the other half of the time, it's me doing the first draft, so, yeah. Thank you. Um, Peter, maybe you could tell us a bit about working on the Indian philosophy episodes that you co-wrote with Jonathan Ganeri. That was very different, actually, because I, first of all, I had a somewhat better idea of what would be involved in looking at Indian philosophy. So as the story GK has just told kind of suggests, I went into African philosophy, although actually we wound up calling it Africana philosophy because it includes philosophy in the diaspora. I went into that with zero knowledge, really. I mean, like not even any idea of what you'd cover, what it would be about, right? And so for me, there's been a very strong learning curve where um, actually, I think this may be useful for the listener because what's happened is that Chike is sort of teaching me what's involved in the whole topic. And then, especially in the episodes where I write the first draft, you're kind of getting the voice of someone who's learning about it as they're writing or, and reading. Um, so I think that that's actually kind of nice, the mixture of like an amateur and an expert that you get with those episodes. Um, and that's true to some extent with Indian philosophy, except that at least with Indian philosophy, um, that was a course that was taught at King's College London, where I used to teach. And I had even examined it together with Jen Arden. Um, and so I knew a little bit about it. Like I wasn't surprised that we were talking about Buddhism and the Bhagavad Gita. And I even knew that there were these so-called six orthodox schools in the Vedic tradition. So when I saw his list of what we were covering, I wasn't that surprised, I guess. Whereas when I, when Chike sent me the list of the Africana episodes, I was like, my first reaction was, holy cow, I can't believe how much of this there is. Like this is going to take us a long time. And also, and also just, you know, like, oh yeah, that like we could have an episode about whatever gender in traditional African culture, what a cool idea, right? Um, so really in that case, the it's been a pure learning experience for me, but I have to say that I knew very little about in classical Indian philosophy as well before I started. So I knew about it like in the broadest of outlines, but I had never 
worked on any of it, read the secondary literature, read the primary literature in, in translation and so on. Um, one other big difference there is that with the exception of some episodes, which I wrote the first draft on, Jannardin agreed to do this series with me and then sort of didn't contact me for almost a full year. And I began to wonder whether he had gotten cold feet. And just as I was about to get back in touch with him and say, hey, Jannardin, are we still really doing this? He sent me the whole thing as like a single document. So he sent me something like 45 episodes as one, one chunk, which I was very surprised by. Um, and so I, so when I was working on the Indian series, it was more like Jannardin's job was already done and I was adding stuff. So where I thought, oh, we could have a, we could have an episode here, or maybe we need to split this into two episodes or something. I would kind of contact him for advice and ask him about things like, what can I read? And, and I would also, obviously, um, I ran all of the scripts past him. We also had to talk about things like um, who to interview in the series, because the podcast, we haven't mentioned this, but the podcast is a mix between scripted episodes that I record. Even when Chike writes them, I record them. Um, so there's scripted episodes and there's um, episodes where we have an expert interview guest, which are more like this, what we're doing now. And so anyway, Jen Arden was involved the whole time, but it he was much, it was much more like he handed it over to me and then I took it from there. And I think both approaches have worked. Uh, I, I mean, I really like the fact that with Chike and, and I, when we're working through it, we're kind of playing off each other. And I'm, since I'm learning from his scripts as we go along, it helps me write the next thing I have to write, you know? Um, but generally speaking, I, I certainly have enjoyed working with both of them, of course, and uh, learned a lot by doing both. Um, I was, and I mean, the other thing is just how amazing it's been to get this kind of crash course on these two amazing bodies of philosophical literature and get to do that together with two world leading experts. I mean, it's amazing. So I think I've probably gotten more out of it than any listener could hope to get out of it, but I hope the listener gets a lot out of it too. Um, one of the things that strikes me about, you know, um, the, doing these history philosophy podcasts, and it's something that came up in the discussion groups as well when we were doing, um, you know, uh, we had Sam Mimbo on for a discussion group on sage philosophy, and this is something he really talked about, and then we had... Um, for the South Asian philosophy discussion groups, um, we had uh, someone come speak to us about philosophy of language and talking about Sanskrit and pra uh, Prakrit and like grammar as philosophy. Um, and I mean, I was wondering what it has been like to uh, do this sort of, um, you know, especially like the Indian philosophy episodes that are sort of like classical Indian philosophy and then the pre-colonial African philosophy. Um, you know, to do it in English and to sometimes have to translate uh, concepts or, you know, give an idea of, um, you know, the, what a word means uh, that can't necessarily be or easily translated into English. Well, one reason I didn't originally plan to try to cover Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy for that matter, is that I thought um, it, it, would just, it was sort of inappropriate for someone to do that who can't read the original primary texts. So like for Western European philosophy, plus Islamic philosophy, which I always plan to include, 
I can read Greek, Arabic, and Latin. So that takes you all, all the way up to the rise of vernacular literature in early modernity. And I can read French and German too. So I can basically, I can read almost all of Western European philosophy plus Islamic philosophy, except for like Kierkegaard. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that, from that and I thought, in fact, I thought that was one reason why it made sense for me to do it because at least I can like check that. I mean, it's not like I'm reading everything that I ever read for the podcast in the original language. That would take a long time, but I can at least check the original when I want to. And also I can speak with at least some authority about what the words mean. And so that's why when I decided it was a good idea to tackle these other traditions, I've always tried to get co-authors. However, African philosophy presents some unusual challenges there because of course a lot of diasporic uh, Africana philosophy is in French or English so that's no problem I mean Chica is from Canada so his French is quite good but then we have the problem of um, African languages which I think would be fair to say we don't speak all of those (laughs) and in fact nobody does so maybe Chica can say something about that and and how complex an issue that is because that's really interesting I think Mm. Yeah, well, the um, the interesting thing, well, you know, uh, as your question sort of suggested, <clears throat> you might uh, compare, you know, the question of uh, your ability to read Sanskrit and how that relates to um, covering classical Indian philosophy with something like the question of can you uh, read ancient Egyptian? Right, um, and and you know we did a series of episodes on ancient Egypt, you know, and and here is where I'll mention that not only did we do the podcast without me actually being able to read read ancient Egyptian, but I have in fact published um, an article that a lot of people seem to like. Uh, on, on the tale of the Elegant Peasants. And I also cannot read um, ancient Egyptian philosophy. And, you know, that actually was, uh, you know, so separate and apart from and before um, even doing the podcast, that was something that I uh, had to, you know, uh, think about like, well, should I do this? Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know why it's sort of reminding me of what Peter's saying about the podcast. I mean, I ended up uh, sort of saying that, you know, well, I think I do need to do this instead of wait for others to. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt like, well, you know, I could, uh, I could wait until, you know, I get the time to really put into uh, learning to read ancient Egyptian uh, before trying to do any scholarship on it. But, you know, if I'm really trying to stimulate this as an area of research, I might as well get going, so to speak. Um, You know, and and in addition to that, I certainly did a a number of things that I, I mean, I, you know, I, I learned a lot about how the ancient Egyptian language and reading it works and then, you know, um, I read every translation I could get my hands on and, you know, made 
careful comparison of where they differ and things of that nature. So I did things to sort of uh, somewhat compensate for my uh, for my lack of ability to, to read in the original. But um, yeah, that story I thought is relevant to, to uh, and just an interesting thing for students and researchers to think about, you know, when are you allowed to intervene, so to speak, you know, uh, in terms of <clears throat> covering these kinds of topics. In any case, um, once uh, you move beyond um, ancient Egyptian, also Ge'ez, because we covered, uh, you know, philosophy coming out of Ethiopia, um, and we had, you know, uh, episodes on philosophy in sub-Saharan, Islamic philosophy in sub-Saharan Africa, which of course actually did include uh, text in Arabic. So that we yeah, that was a face that Peter like, ah language you know, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter had facility with the original in that case. However, it is also the case that uh, some of that is in African languages. Uh, Hausa and Fulani being the biggest examples. And so, uh, you know, for example, uh, Nana Asmao, who we covered. Um, uh, wrote uh, her poetry in Arabic and Hausa and Fulani. Um, right, so then, you know, moving beyond that, then, you know, you, uh, you get to the part, the part of the podcast where we were breaking it up thematically because we were interested in talking about uh, philosophy in oral traditions and at that point of the podcast there's not a you know there's not a real chronology to to be able to to to, to have in place um and you know even if there was a chronology then you'd have the question of like how you're gonna bounce around the very like the various places of the continent right i mean and so um I mean, at that point, actually, you end you end up, you know, things end up being actually somewhat easy in terms of the uh, the question of your ability to read uh, in uh, languages you know, um, because you know what we're drawing on then is um, the research that has been produced in uh, professional African philosophy, first first and foremost. Um, which is generally in English and French, right? And the ways that, you know, professional African philosophers have tried to, uh, you know, capture um, concepts, ideas, themes um, in oral traditions. Um, and then another thing, which I, uh, which I have commended uh, Peter for uh, before, is that um, he did a lot of the first drafts in that section of the podcast, uh, and um, he had a tendency to really dig in, not merely to the literature by professional philosophers, but uh, he spent a lot of time with um, literature and anthropology. So again, you know, uh, most of that was actually in English, 
so it didn't uh, present uh, too many reading difficulties that way, but really enriched the podcast uh, in terms of uh, bringing out um, these themes. And, you know, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, one could, uh, you know, one could do, you know, a whole longer uh, series sort of covering all of the themes that, um, one could uh, one one could find in anthropological texts, um, you know, the way that you can think of that part of the series is that every theme that we're covering has been by professional philosophers themselves treated as an area of serious interest, and again, I think that it is therefore enriched uh, by the way that Peter. Uh, really moved beyond the literature by professional philosophers, also to a lot of the literature by anthropologists. Something that I'd add there is that I was actually a little bit disconcerted while working on that at the fact that even though, as Jika as just said, we were reading anthropological and philosophical literature about these cultures in English or French usually, mostly in English actually, um, they would often say, oh, well, there's this saying in the Akan people or the Luba people. And here's the saying in transliteration, and it's some African language that obviously we can't read. And even if we could read one of them, there's like 12 others that are being quoted, right? In the stuff that we're reading. So no, nobody knows all these languages, I don't, I don't think. Um, and so they, they will maybe give you the transliteration, maybe not. And then they'll say, and here's what it means. And then they'll take a whole bunch of philosophical messages out of that. And you have no way of second guessing their translation. And a lot actually turns on the way they're translating it, right? So for example, uh, one that's just in my head at the moment is there's like a big discussion about how African traditional peoples have thought about time because this uh, philosopher named John MBT argued that African tradition doesn't have a conception of the future or at least doesn't have a conception of the long, fu long future, like the future way ahead. Um, and he was interested in that because he thought it meant that traditional African peoples couldn't understand Christian theology and the idea of the last judgment, okay? And so people criticize this and they say, well, here's, here's a saying from, I think this might be an Akan saying, um, this, and the saying goes something like, time, time is like a bird, it flies away before you can catch it something to that effect. And then you wonder, well, okay, what's the word for time there, right? So to what extent does that actually correspond to our abstract notion of time? Uh, or you even find sayings in some of the same literature where they're translating African words with English words like eternity. And so you really wonder what's going on there. Sometimes the scholars comment on this, like they'll say, oh, well, the word I'm translating as time here literally means seasons. And then you think, oh, well, that's kind of different, <laughs> right? And so, the, so there are problems like that all the time. Um, but I think it's inevitable, really. I mean, even if someone um, became a career expert just on oral traditions in Africa, they would still have the same problem because you have to take account of the immense diversity of Africa as a continent and all these different cultures, all these different languages. And so you're never going to be uh, beyond the situation of having to take people's word for it 
as they report on languages that they have learned because you can't learn all of them yourself. It's not possible. Um, Okay, you gonna... Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm interested to add something because um, I think that what Peter just said is true. But then uh, it's interesting to think. Well, so, but if you wanted to, if you really wanted to try to be the best expert you could be and learn the least amount of languages that you had to learn, you know, then uh, then what what might you do? And so. Um, I think that one thing that you would really want to do is learn Akan. So, uh, you know, that's referring to um, a language or a, lang or a family of languages, depending on how you think of things, that is uh, it's mostly in what is today Ghana, although also um, one of the most spoken languages in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, um, Baule, is also an Akan language. So it's it's you know it's a, a language in that area <clears throat> of West Africa, um, and uh, for reasons that are probably um, you know historically explainable, but not aren't necessarily obvious. Um, I mean that is an area that has that is a a, a language uh, that is a. Um, you know, an ethnicity, you know, I'll even say, that has produced some of the most important um, African philosophers, right? So, you know, as I'm sort of already suggesting, right, like, 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 so Peter has to be right because the fact is that, like, you know, there's such a plethora of African languages. But then, but then you have the interesting question of, like, well, what does the tradition as it has already developed sort of give to you, right? One thing is an overrepresentation of Akan philosophers, right? And so by learning Akan, you would be able to, for example, uh, uh, engage with uh, the work of Kwame Cheche, which is very important. And, and you know, he is um, the best example of someone who's treating Proverbs as a key kind of philosophical text, right? Um, but interestingly, in, in my very first publication, uh, professional publication, uh, um, my very first professional publication was on a book called um, Caliban's Reason, um, introducing Afro-Caribbean philosophy by Paget Henry, and it is an engagement with his treatment of traditional African philosophy. And the, the, the point I'm, I'm making at certain points is that he's uh, treating um, traditional African philosophy as, as a much less of a contentious thing than it is. Right? And one example that I end up using is the ways that he chooses to translate um, uh, the terms uh, okra and sunsum, if I'm remembering those terms right. Hopefully I'm, uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, like 2004 is what I'm talking about in terms of when I published this. So it's a long time ago, um, but, um, you know, he chooses two ways of 
translating those terms. They are parts of the person, uh, arguably, right? And, you know, and so I then made the point that, well, you actually have disagreement between different philosophers, all of whom are a Khan, about how to translate those terms, right? And so, um, so that, you know, on the one hand, illustrates uh, the point that Peter was making about how, you know, translation issues, you know, really do come up, but also illustrates my point that learning a Khan would be a great idea if you want to, like, engage a lot of what's out there. And then the other thing is that you, uh, you would, of course, want to learn a Bantu language. The Bantu language family is a huge language family, uh, you know, uh, that is that reaches down to the bottom of the continent because languages like Zulu um, are Bantu, and then also to the east of the continent. And so Swahili, which is, you know, one of the most spoken African languages is a Bantu language, right? Um, and that would help you for lots of reasons. Uh, you know, the very first, I mean, the book that helped to uh, shape uh, professional African philosophy as a discipline is a book called Bantu Philosophy, <laughs> um, where, uh, you know, the, the language that's being um, drawn on a lot is um, Baluba. I mean, not, no, sorry, not Baluba, because that would be the people. Chiluba, I think, would be the name of the language. But the Luba people of uh, Central Africa, what is now uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, that's being drawn on there. Um, uh, Peter mentioned John Mbiti and his book, African uh, Religions and Philosophy. Um, when when uh, Mbiti's making the point that about time, he uses the terms Sasa and Zamani, um, which are Swahili terms. And he also does think a lot about, uh, he, he, you know, he does uh, some comparative stuff with language, I believe, as I recall, in the way he writes. And um, there's also Alexis Kagame. Uh, so I actually have thought about how one Bantu language that, that I would like to learn if I end up having time enough to do all I want to do uh, is Kinyarwanda, the language. It's a Bantu language. It is... Uh, as you can maybe guess, the uh, most spoken language in Rwanda. And, uh, and uh, Kagame was Rwandan. Um, and his book, uh, La Philosophie Bantu Rwandaise de Lettres, the Rwandan Bantu philosophy of being, um, which is written as a dialogue, is very fascinating for its attention to the grammar and the structure of the language and what can you learn from the grammar and the structure of language. He actually treats the structure of the language as sort of like a text um, that uh, the philosopher can investigate um, and, uh, and points that he's making because they're grammatical often do apply to many Bantu languages. But then, you know, you've also just got the specifics of how he's translating particular Kenya Rwanda terms. So uh, those are some of the languages uh, that it could be useful to learn if, if you're trying to uh, put yourself in a good place to read African philosophy.
maybe Yoruba as well. Yoruba for sure uh, as well. I, that uh, that would be one of the ones that I'd feel bad for having not said. So thank you, Peter, because uh, among other things, you know, the oral tradition of the uh, of the Ifa divination um, tradition in uh, the Yoruba context is, um, you know, you can find collections that that have, you know, the the verses that um, the Babalawa, which are the traditional priests of this tradition, you know, they, 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 they recite verses and a lot of those are written down, right? And so uh, to engage uh, with those in the original, you know, learning Yoruba would be uh, an excellent idea. And I would also say, um, if Akan philosophers are the ones who are most disproportionately represented then Yoruba uh, philosophers would come somewhere not far. I mean, not close to them, but not that far behind. And so you have a number of Yoruba philosophers who have, um, you know, who have uh, written, and, and you even have uh, someone like Barry Hallen, who was a, a white American philosopher, but he um, spent time in Nigeria, you know, uh, has has worked with traditional Yoruba elders, and I think maybe the Babalawa themselves as well. Um, and so, uh, so some of his work on um, African philosophy is directly engaging with um, Yoruba ideas. So, yeah, that's a great so one. Basically, for us to you, not miss. you have to learn ancient Egyptian, Ge'ez, Arabic, a couple of Bantu languages, Akan, Yoruba, French. And you're pretty much good to go. Yeah, you'd be. You'd have it's a good a setup. start. <laughs> it, you, yeah, you, you'd be like in one of the best positions. Yeah. Um. Well, sort of a two-part question, really. This, but um, I was wondering what the reception of the podcast has been like, um, on the part of academics, on the part of students, but also maybe more general public engagement, um, and then sort of like building upon that. Um, you know, reception, but also like in your development of the episodes, you know, um, what are the sort of um, advantages to having a sort of podcast structure, but also what are the shortcomings of a podcast structure that maybe you don't like so much in doing public philosophy? Well, we already heard from Chike a good example of maybe the best thing about it, which is that I get feedback from listeners. So as Chike said, he started as a listener and his feedback led to uh, at least doubling the ambition of the whole project. So that was very helpful. <laughs> um, <You're welcome. laughs> I mean, not helpful in terms of like getting this all done before I die, but helpful <laughs> in making it more culturally diverse and interesting. Uh, and that happens at a smaller scale as well. So, I mean, things have happened like, you know, I mention some medieval king and I say, and I say that it's so-and-so the fourth instead of so-and-so the sixth because I just read it wrong, the VI, the IV. And like within one day, someone someone writes a comment on the website because they actually know about medieval history. And they say, I think when you said the sixth, you meant the fourth, right? So they're actually, uh, and the podcast scripts become books, something we haven't mentioned yet. And so in a way, we're have, uh, there's a kind of um, already a copy editing or proofreading going on by the audience as we as we put out the podcast which is really useful although of course they can only catch errors that you can hear um and 
So everything from like really small mistakes to big mistakes, which I make sometimes too, um, to reconceptions of the whole project. Um, this is all very useful and comes in all the time. Like every day we get comments on the website. Um, something that, we, that I've started doing maybe about five years ago is that whenever I'm coming up to a new season, like the Italian Renaissance or the Reformation, which is what I'm doing right now, just started the philosophy in the Reformation series in the original sort of Western European philosophy feed, I, I actually publish online, both on Facebook and on the podcast website, a list of the things I'm planning to cover. And I always get lots of feedback on that. The feedback never takes the form of, oh, here's something you might want to leave out. The feedback is always, <laughs> oh, you forgot this, 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 and this. And so that tends to lead to an expanding of the list. Um, sometimes listeners do say, hey, could you please go faster? Because like, we'd really like you to get to Hume. But I have to admit that the feedback that influences us more is probably the feedback about, oh, shouldn't you cover X? Because it's without any gaps, right? That's the slogan. And so um, I'm always very interested to hear about things I could cover. Even if they don't get their own episode, they might get worked into another episode, for example. And we have gotten um, feedback like this on the Africana series as well. I'm not sure. If, can you think of an example, Chike, of something we added because of it? Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, episode on Brazil was influenced by a listener who, uh, who wrote um, in the comments section of a previous episode and directly influenced um, the episode uh, on, um, on uh, 19th century Brazil and abolition. Yeah, that's a great um, example. Which I do, yeah, I do think, uh, I hope, but I do think that on the, the, the webpage for that episode that we do think, thank that listener because yeah, no, that's a really good example of very directly um, influencing. We, we had talked about how, you know, uh, we definitely want to have some coverage of, uh, you know, Brazil. Um, I, I already knew that, oh, well, there's, Abdias do Nascimento, uh, a Brazilian thinker who I want us to cover for the 20th century. Um, I wasn't sure what we would do in terms of um, part two. So, you know, 20th century is part three. So we knew that there'd be some Brazil in there. I wasn't sure what Brazil, how Brazil would figure into part two. And, uh, and we, we, we got some helpful hints uh, from a listener that directly influenced the episode there. Yeah, and that was, of course, a chance to be reminded that I don't read Portuguese, so I had the same <laughs> language problem again. Um, but I should also say, because you asked about feedback from academics, that has actually been a really great um, part of the whole experience. To be honest, when I first started the podcast, one of the things that made me tentative about it was that I have seen, and this is relevant to your whole your whole podcast series about public philosophy, a lot of professional philosophers have at best an ambivalent attitude towards public philosophy. So they sort of think it's dumbing down. They think it's, you know, um, maybe giving a false impression of philosophy by packaging it in a form that everyone can easily understand, right? Like, so, you know, for example, yesterday I wrote a podcast about Erasmus. So I wrote the script. It's about three and a half thousand words long. So I'm trying to explain Erasmus in 25 minutes. And so you can see that there's going to be a little bit of simplification 
and corner cutting going on there. So I was worried that people would um, kind of think I was wasting my time. But then I decided that I didn't maybe care so much about that. <laughs> but in any case, I was wrong. So the, I don't know about you, GK, but the feedback I get from colleagues has been uniformly positive. And uh, I think it helps that we interview these experts, right? So, that, so we're integrating the voices of other scholars into the show. Um, that also has given us the opportunity to involve a lot of women scholars. So sure. we make a real effort to try to have um, as close as we can get to like 50-50 gender balance uh, in the, with the guests. Um, and in addition, like when I was just saying that I, I published the list of episodes that we're projecting to do before it even gets to that um, with something like the Reformation, because I don't have Chike. <laughs> Uh, like writing it with me uh, sort of an expert on the philosophy and the reformation i'm trying to do it by myself so what i do is i do enough research to come up with an episode list and then i send it to a bunch of experts and they gave me feedback and i modified the list and then i published that and then the listeners give me more feedback so actually by the time we start writing episodes for each season there's usually that the, the list of topics has in a way gone through a pretty vigorous vetting or rigorous right. vetting procedure. Um, and I've just always been amazed at how generous other people in the field are like coming on to do interviews, but also more quietly behind the scenes, giving us feedback on scripts, giving us feedback on episode lists. So people are really uh, great about it. I think they really want to, you know, give the advantage of their expertise to a project like this. So that's been really inspiring, actually. Yeah, that sounds like a yeah, full peer review. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and also like, you know, it has been to the amount of work that goes into the podcast, because, you know, I mean, we've used the, we've used certain podcast episodes as resources for discussion groups and have been enormously useful. And um, I think it's been really good as well for our students to be directed to such a comprehensive, um, you know, or as comprehensive as you can get a um, place where they can explore all these different philosophies. Um, mm -hmm. Actually relates to like, sort of my last question that we can end on um, is uh, sort of how you visualize this project, because it seems to me that, you know, it provides an enormous archive really of um, both like, you know, historical philosophers, but also contemporary conversations in philosophy. I think it's almost, you know, a direct um, response to um, our contemporary concerns about diversification and um, decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and then it also has this added thing of like citation politics right with um 50 50 gender balance or like citing um philosophers of color um and i was wondering in terms of like visualizing this project whether you see it as something as a intellectual history project um you know because both of you are philosophers or whether it is you know a project really sort of um aimed at philosophy or whether it's more interdisciplinary or that, that's an interesting question um uh, one thing I'll say to first just uh, sort of link back to your previous question is that um, I think invaluable is a word that I've heard from a number of uh, colleagues, uh, you know, other professional philosophers um, to describe the podcast. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that, that just goes to what Peter was saying about the, 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 the positive feedback 
Um, and I, I actually think that, um, you know, while, while a professional philosopher is likely to be the kind of person who's going to have a certain looking down upon um, public philosophy type of, you know, if someone's going to have that reaction, it's likely to be a professional philosopher. However, at the same time, so many professional philosophers who actually spend time engaging with the podcast, they're also sort of in some ways um, well-placed to know how much work goes into it, right? Because they have a sense of the kind of research it would take to be able to say the amount of things that we're saying and um, touch on on things that we're touching on. I mean, there are times that um, in the Africana podcast that we are covering things and, you know, there isn't a vast literature, vast literature to go to because, uh, you know, we're covering it because it seems sort of obviously important thinking about the history of Africana thought, not because a lot of people have written on it. Um, and so there's a there's a, a pioneering that happens at that point, and also there is the question of especially for the things where there are there where there is a lot of secondary literature, how you're you know uh, being informed by that, and um, so I think that people do uh, res- respect that, and um, I've certainly heard of uh, people using the podcast in. Um, uh, in classes, um, I think I've guest lectured in classes based on um, the class having used the podcast. Uh, not, I think I have. I've definitely done that even locally. Um, so I've been able to, you know, show up at in a classroom, you know, live um, uh, because they've been listening to certain episodes of the podcast. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, I think a powerful intervention um, in all of these ways, um, you know, in relation to sort of what you were specifically asking just there, I almost don't know if there's that much I can add to what you said, because it is sort of all of those things, right? It is uh, an intellectual history. It is... Uh, specifically focused on philosophy, but necessarily interdisciplinary in terms of all that it's bringing in. It is, you know, a contemporary intervention in terms of how it relates to the the goal of diversifying philosophy. Uh, it's sort of all those things, and and uh, you know, it's so, some of that is a happy accident, right? So there's ways in which uh, it's real because I, I think it plays a vital role in the in the current, you know, move to diversify, right? And of course, as we've talked about, it didn't necessarily set out to do that. I mean, you know, it, it always was going to do some diversifying given that it's, you know, by a, an expert in philosophy in the Islamic world, but, oops, sorry about that. Um, uh, but, you know, it, uh, it took on that character uh, to such a, a greater degree and uh, somewhat organically, you might say. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, the, yeah, the podcast is 
becoming what it is. <laughs> I guess one advantage of that too is that it, I think it has the power to reach and kind of quietly convince people who maybe they're not against the idea of diversifying philosophy, but maybe they just haven't thought about it or they don't particularly care. So if you imagine a podcast that was devoted solely to non-Western philosophy, let's say, or that was somehow labeled as being about diversifying philosophy, and there are podcasts like that. So there's a, a really good podcast called the Unmute Podcast, run by Maisha Cherry, which um, explicitly makes it its mission to speak to you know philosophers of color and other philosophers who um, maybe aren't always the people who are thought of as like paradigm example of philosopher, who would, which would be more someone like me, right? White uh, English speaking guy with a beard, right? Um, but and that's not how that's not how we present what we're doing even in the africana series so the way that the the way we present what we're doing is well we're just going to tell you about all the philosophy that there is one bit at a time and the the sort of logic of that is to uh show you that if if you're interested in the history of philosophy in a capacious and broad-minded and like fully embracing way, then you would just have to learn about a lot of African philosophy, a lot of diasporic Africana philosophy, a lot of Indian philosophy, a lot of Chinese philosophy. Um, and I mean, it, I think the, in, in some ways, the, the most powerful diversifying move is to almost like put the burden on the skeptic to sort of like show them all this stuff and then say, well, what, why would you not want to know about this? Like, you know, what could, what could be your objection possibly be? And um, I think that's actually very powerful and it's all the more powerful for being so understated. So, and I think that what Chike said about the fact that the, di the diversification of the um, podcast project is something that kind of happened along the way is part of that because the original mission was just to be as complete as possible within the limits of my own competence and then eventually I decided to be as complete as possible beyond the limits of my own confidence. <laughs> and this is the result. Well, thank you so much for being here today and for answering my questions on the podcast. Um, I'm sure it's really interesting to hear more about um, the work that happens in the background because we see the finished product. And, um, you know, I can speak for myself. It's been absolutely wonderful to um, be able to listen to them. So thank you. Thank you for making room for the possibility of strengthening, broadening, or contesting our interpretive frameworks and field of consideration. Many thanks to the entire OPP, AHRC, Torch, and Oxford podcast teams. We look forward to inquiring with you wherever we find you next, possibly the next episode. Hex, see you then.